At Local Church Fellowship, we try to make sure that every couple of years we, in our learning gatherings, discuss some sort of overview of the Bible. Why is that? Because part of our discipleship is growing in our understanding and our application of the Bible. Um, if you think about it, we are in discipleship wanting to become more like Jesus, and Jesus was somebody who was very well acquainted with his Bible, and it was useful in his life. Um, so if we want to become more like Jesus, which is the goal of our discipleship or our spiritual formation or our theosis, we too should be well acquainted with the Bible like Jesus was and is. So for some people, I know that it doesn't sound particularly exciting or important, and it might be because we're thinking about the Bible in the wrong way. Some people think of the Bible as like a textbook. It's filled with just a bunch of random information. It's kind of hard to understand. It takes a lot of work to understand it. And you think to yourself, oh gosh, I've, I've, I'm finished with school. I finished high school or I finished college. I was done with that. I don't want to like endeavor into some other difficult kind of learning. And um, maybe it feels even like a textbook about a topic that doesn't really affect you. For me in high school, that was chemistry. My chemistry book, it's like, well, why would I want to study that? It's not going to make any difference in, in the rest of my life. Um, sometimes we feel like the Bible is old. It's antiquated. Uh, so it just doesn't feel relevant to us. It's talking about old events, right? Uh, it's not the latest thing. We get really into what's, what's something new out there that I can grab onto. But I want to just remind you of, before we jump into a new series here about the Bible, I want to remind you about a couple things about the Bible to hopefully kind of snap us out of that mentality about the Bible. It is not a textbook per se. And I would suggest that if you think about it like a textbook, it probably will be boring um, unless you're a theologian and that's kind of the, the career that you have. Um, God could have given us a textbook for our faith, but he didn't. What God did give us is a story. The Bible is a story. Um, it's broken up into 66 parts or books, two testaments, as most of you know. Um, it's, it's one unified story, though. So there's a plot from start to finish. And as we read the Bible, certain parts of it certainly feel like a story, the narrative parts, but they're separated kind of by other parts that, that don't so much feel like a story. There's poetry, there's letters, there's apocalyptic literature, but it is actually one story. And it's important that we understand it as a story or else we won't get the correct meaning from it. Meaning of, of words needs context, right? We have to read the parts of the story in the context of the whole story or we're not being fair to the author of the story who laid it out in a certain way. My um, hermeneutics professor, Todd Miles, in seminary would say, words don't have meaning. They have meanings. Words don't have meaning, they have meanings. Meaning only happens in context. Does that make sense? So the same thing could be said about sentences in the Bible or paragraphs or chapters that they only have meaning within the whole. If I say ocean, well, that doesn't really have meaning. Now, if I say the ocean is full of water, 
that means something. If I say I fell into the ocean that was full of water, well, that has meaning, but ocean by itself doesn't have meaning. In a similar way, the words and sentences and paragraphs of scripture only have their proper meaning within the whole. For example, if you read the parable in Luke chapter 12, and you read one verse, and it said this, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. If that was all that I read, that one verse and no context from the story around it, I would get the wrong meaning. This is a parable we find out if we read more, and the point of the parable is the exact opposite of what that one verse suggests. So we have to be careful not to soundbite the Bible, which is really oftentimes people will do and say, well, this doesn't make any sense, or this is wrong, or this can't be right, not looking at the whole. You really can't understand the parts very well without understanding the main storyline. It's like if you were going to um, try to make sense of a movie, if you walk in after you've missed the first hour of the movie, say, you watch 30 seconds of a scene, and then you walk out for the rest of it. Imagine that. What meaning are you going to have from that scene? Is there some meaning? Well, sure, you could probably grab something out of that. Is it going to be the meaning that the creator of that movie meant for you to have? Probably not. That's like picking up the Bible without knowing the story and blindly turning to a passage and trying to figure out what that means. But the Bible is a story, and we only under pro properly understand the parts of the story by understanding the whole. Not only is the Bible a story, but the Bible is a true story. It's telling the story about the world in which we live from beginning to end. I have to remind myself that a lot of times when I'm reading the Bible, that there is a historical nature to the Bible's story. Like this really happened, or this really will happen, depending on where you're reading, right? So the Bible's a story, and it's a true story. And the third thing I just want to emphasize before we jump in is that the Bible is my story. The Bible is your story. I know as we read through the pages of Scripture, the, the vast majority of the Bible events, um, they are describing things that have already happened about other people, but they are events that affect us. If you were to do 23andMe or if Ancestry.com, if they got really, really good and could trace back literally thousands and thousands of years, it would show a connection between you and other people in the church and other people in the city and in the world. And it would say, hey, there's been a match made. Your great, 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 great to the 40th grandparents are Adam and Eve or Noah and his wife. We would actually find that we could trace all the way back into our story. This is the true story. It's our true story. Not just biologically, but it's our faith heritage. Our, our faith goes back not only to first century believers, but it goes back further still to Israel or, or the Jews, right? Sometimes people, they think of the Old Testament as unimportant because, well, I'm not Jewish, so why does that matter to me? But the Hebrew Bible is part of our Bible, and it's speaking to the origins of our faith, and it was written by the same God. The story of the Bible isn't just part of our story also in a historical sense, but in a future sense, right? In the apocalyptic literature contained in the Bible, mainly the book of Revelation, and in the present tense, it is our story. The spiritual realities described in the Bible are our current spiritual realities. 
1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam, all die. We, you and me, are all part of that. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Adam's sin affects us, and Christ's death and resurrection affects us. Luke 9, 23. And he said to all, okay, this is Jesus talking to a particular people, the people who could, like, were within earshot of him around AD 30. He said to, to them, to those people, all of them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, who's anyone? If it's a true story, then that's me. That's you. So, though we're not mentioned by name here in Scripture, Scripture is our story. There's even places, a few, that talk about us even more specifically, um, where it's so cool that ancient authors are, are kind of referring to us in the future. Uh, namely, John uh, 17, 20 is, is kind of a big one. But this is an amazing, amazing story. And I want to just start off by saying that it's a true story. It involves you. It involves me. It involves everyone who has ever been. But more than that, and this is what I think is most magnificent about the story, is that the author, who is God, you know, writing through people, but God is the ultimate author of the pages of Scripture, he has written himself into the story. Just think about that. You know, most authors, they sit down and they write a story, but there's no way that they can become a part of the story in a real sense. Sure, they could kind of put their name in there and make a character that's like them, but they're not living in the actual reality of the story. But God, he, he made up the story, and he's really making it happen. It's true. And he enters into the reality of it. He's a character in his own true story. Like, sometimes I just have to step back and look at the Bible and just say, this is fantastic. This is incredible. This is an amazing thing that God has put together. But it's a big story. So here's my goal for the next uh, several lessons that we have. Uh, one, I want to provide a simple way to uh, remember the very basic story of the Bible. Okay, there's lots of pages in here, but how can we look at it just in its big chunk components? Or if you already know those components, then um, maybe this will just give you a simple way to share it with other people. I hope that also this will help you if you're one who's wanting to pick up and, and study the Bible and read it, which I hope you will. Um, but this will give you a way to open up anywhere and to know basically where you're at in the plot so that you can have correct understanding of the meaning of the particular section that you're reading. Okay, so we're going to spend six weeks covering each of the main components of the story. We'll call it the plot. Okay, um, some people would break this down a lot of times down into four parts. Other people break it into 50 parts, but we're going to try six just to make sense of it in kind of some miracle form. In each of the six main sections of the plot that we'll cover in the future weeks, for each one we'll cover the main events that happen in that section of the plot. We'll talk about the genre or the, the literature type that it is written in so we can know how to read it. Um, that's very important, by the way. We read historical narrative, which is a lot of the Bible, in a different way than we read a casual letter, right? In a different way than we read poetry, but all of which these are also included in the Bible. 
um, a different way than we would read philosophy. Um, so we need to make sure we're understanding the genre of each section that we're reading so that we can give the Bible the same courtesy that we do to other literature and read it according to the genre as the author meant it to be read, right? Um, so the main events, the genre, the some key theological concepts within that section, and also to just talk about how those different sections, those different pieces of the plot fit together. And then we'll follow that up as we normally do with some discussion about knowing, hey, how does, how does understanding this part of the plot, this part of the story, the story as a whole, how does that affect us? Or how, how can we share this appropriately in our context? Now I know that as we go through this, a lot of this is review for a lot of you. But I would ask, can you tell this story of the Bible succinctly? Um, maybe I should ask, are you telling the story at all? Maybe you're not because you can't or you don't feel confident kind of of, of, of what's going on in the overarching picture, the overall story. Um, do you know why we probably shouldn't skip from Genesis chapter 3 at the beginning of the Bible all the way through to Jesus? You know, a lot of people leave this part out of the Bible, this big section right here, as if uh, we don't really know exactly kind of what that's talking about. So I hope to give a framework that will help. Now, in these lessons, you won't remember everything I say. I'm going to try to emphasize the, the main points. And you will think that I have missed some of the key things that happen. It's a big book. Again, um, all of it's important, but I'm going to do my best to provide some summary in a way that's helpful to you so you can read it right, so you can share it well. And I hope this helps. So I'm really looking forward to it. Let's just dive in. The first part of the story, one of the shortest parts is found, of course, at the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, we find a part of the plot that I like to call the purpose. Um, first, a quick word on genre. The book of Genesis and a lot of the Old and New Testament is historical narrative. That's what we call it. That's about 60% of the entire Bible, historical narrative. All that means is it's a retelling of past events, okay? Historical narrative. Well, how are we supposed to read historical narrative? Well, you read it like you read a story. There's a sequence of events that builds on top of each other to, to form a cohesive chronological, usually, story, okay? Um, you say, well, isn't that the whole Bible? Well, no, think about the Proverbs, for instance. The Proverbs, you could take a verse or two and those have meaning just kind of within themselves, though they do fit in the overall story, but it's not a, a sequence of events if you're reading the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is poetry or it's wisdom literature, so we read it a little bit differently. But in historical narrative, uh, we read it in a, a retelling of past events. Um, with historical narrative, just like with other historical narrative outside of the Bible, we take things very literally for what they say. And again, that's unlike maybe the more poetic parts of Scripture, like the Psalms, that you read just a lot of things that you realize, well, that's the, the author is giving a word picture of what he's saying. But no, in historical narrative, unless it's very apparent that the author is using a common kind of figure of speech of the day, uh, which is fine, we would, anybody would do that in his, as they're writing about history, um, it's, we just take it literally for what it is. 
So there probably isn't a secondary kind of underlying meaning that we have to decipher. No, it's just saying what happened. Now, of course, in biblical historical narrative, there's a theological or there's a instructional element. So God is communicating to us specific things. So certain historical events in the Bible are chosen and other things aren't chosen because he's wanting to communicate something. The Bible isn't trying to be world history 101, but it is specifically teaching us about God and his relationship with mankind. You'll notice that even in this first part of the plot, the purpose. Um, so besides just recording facts, we want to look for what is the author doing? What is he wanting to do? Are there purpose statements? Are there repeated themes so we can understand what is being communicated to us? How do we know this is historical narrative, Genesis, and, and much of the rest of Scripture, and not just a, a philosophy book of allegory, like people oftentimes think that the Bible is? Well, with any ancient document, unless there are clues otherwise, we assume when someone's talking in the past tense, that they're talking in historical narrative. I walked the dog. Historical narrative. Okay? Uh, even if I said, I was flying down Interstate 5. Okay? Still historical narrative. Yes, I used a, a, a figure of speech, right? Flying. I wasn't literally flying, so we didn't take that literally. But we understand what is meant. I was flying down Interstate 5, or here in Tennessee, Interstate 40, right? Um, but what if we read somewhere in some piece of literature we picked up that it said remember to walk the dog that we might read a little bit differently we might understand that as a voicemail transcript or a text message that somehow we've received in, in paper form or an email right um what if we picked up some transcript transcript that said um do we walk the dogs or do the dog walk us we cannot tell, and so we learn to trust. Okay, I'm trying to write a poem for you. Um, we would understand that because of the verse and rhyme and because of the philosophical kind of nature of it that we're not dealing with historical narrative. So we know it's historical narrative simply by how it reads, and we treat it that way, just as we would any other ancient literature or any kind of literature. So even if you don't believe the story actually happened, you can recognize that the author is presenting it as a narrative of history. And we know that too is throughout we're using actual real places and times and events that are being described there. So it's historical narrative. So the first part of the plot, finally, very short, Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. You can turn in your Bible there if you haven't already. So first let's let's look at the main events. Now again, I know you guys are, are familiar with this, many of you, uh, but what are the main events that happen in this first part of the plot? Now you know this. What's the very first thing the Bible describes? It is creation. So Genesis 1.1, I don't even have to look. You can repeat it with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You already have it memorized, many of you. All the translations say the same thing with that. Um, this is the very start of the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it goes into some detail. There's some kind of sub-events. That's, that's the main event that's happening. But within that, we see it broken down into how he created in, in six days. And so it starts in, in verse 2 by saying the earth was without form and void. 
Um, that's how the ESV translates it. Another more kind of direct translation of that is the earth was unformed and unfilled. So unformed and unfilled. And then we go into the rest of chapter one, three days of forming and three days of filling. So it starts unformed and unfilled, and now he's going to form and fill those things. So day one, he creates light. We won't look through each chapter and verse here, but light, um, not a source of the life. He's just light. He's forming the light um, So and separating light from darkness. So we have this um, kind of creation of the existence of time. That day ends by saying and there's evening and there's morning, the first day. So all of a sudden time is created where before that there wasn't any sense of time. Um, that's day one, forming light. Day two, he's forming the expanse that separates the water. So in the ancient days, the way of thinking was there's water below us. That's the sea. There's water above us. It's kind of where the rain comes from. And in between that, where we live is the, the expanse or kind of like our, our sky. So he creates the light, the forms the light. He forms the expanse and the waters. He forms the land in day three, or we can see it as continents um, and puts vegetation in that land, right? Dry land. And then after those days of forming, he kind of matches that with three days of filling. So to match the forming of the light, he makes the, in the fourth day, the sun, the moon, and the stars. So he fills the light with those things. He then fills the expanse and the water with fish and birds on day five, forming and filling. Remember day three, he had formed the land. And so on day six, the one that matches that, he forms animals and people to fill the land. So forming and filling. And then the seventh day, of course, when the work is done, God rests from his work, we read. It goes on in chapter two to kind of zoom in on the creation of mankind. And it gives some more detail about that. We see the creation of Adam. We see um, this beautiful garden called Eden that God creates. We see the formation of Eve out of Adam. And then we see kind of the first description of marriage and human relationship with each other, um, all described throughout there in the end of chapter two. So those are the main events of part one of the plot. It may be easy. You kind of maybe have most of that so far. Um, but as I said at the beginning, the Bible isn't just a historical narrative that's just randomly recorded facts about world history in order, but it's meant to inform us specifically about God and about God's relationship to mankind. So a helpful way, as we look at any part of the Bible, to, to, to begin to think about what God is communicating to us in his word is to ask two questions. I love to do this. There's people all over the world asking these two questions just to kind of understand what's, what's God telling me in this. First, what do I learn about God? And what do I learn about mankind? So what do we learn about God in this section? Well, a few things. We learn that God has always existed. In the beginning, God created. He was already there. Um, we learn that God creates. And he creates just by speaking it. By the word of his command, things just come into existence. And they come into existence from nothing. That's the where we get the term ex nihilo. Um, God creates something from nothing. So God creates, we learn about God. We also learn that God gives life. That's going to be an important theme throughout the whole story. So hold on to that. 
Uh, but we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, the Lord God formed man, Adam, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living creature. So God has existed. He creates. He gives life. We learn that God is, a, is multifaceted in person. So there's just little hints of it here, but in Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's chapter 1, verse 2. So there's some, there's God, and then there's some Spirit of God as another part of who God is. We also read in the creation of mankind in chapter 1, verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Well, who's he talking to? Um, who, who, who is the us? And so we see kind of hints of what theologians one day would call the, the Trinity. One God, multiple persons. But like a really good story, uh, there's things that we're going to learn that are held off from being told right at the beginning as the book is being set up here um, that we're going to learn later about the characters in the book. And so uh, we just have little hints of the Trinity in there. Um, an important theme that we can learn from God very easily as we look at this, another one, is that God creates what is good and only what is good. Seven times in the account we read, and God saw that it was good. Those things that he created were good. And one time he says, and it was very good, everything that he had made. Now hold on to that because in the next lesson, we're going to talk about um, kind of the, the opposite of that in the next part of the plot. God creates what is good, and we could also say and infer that God is himself good. Or we read about in these verses his kindness, his generosity toward mankind. Um, we saw that Adam, or if, if we were to read it, I know we didn't read through all of this, but you, it'll be familiar to, to many of you. Otherwise, you can read these two chapters tonight in just a few minutes. Um, God puts Adam in this garden of Eden that is just rich with goodness. So God is good to Adam in that. He, it says, and the, out of the ground, the Lord God made spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And later he says, I'm giving these to you to eat lush goodness. And that he puts a river in the garden to, to water the garden. God's goodness given to man. He gives Adam Eve and he gives Eve Adam so that they won't be alone. They can enjoy each other. That's just the goodness of God being given. He, it says specifically of mankind that he blesses mankind. So God in his goodness and kindness and love, he bestows favor on mankind. And he creates all of this goodness that they are living in to last forever. Really, Adam and Eve were meant to live forever in all of this goodness. I don't know if you have ever seen this before, but at the end of the seventh day, it's missing something that all the other days have. All the other days end with, and there was morning, or there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. But on the seventh day, there is no description of that because this was meant, this state of being of rest and goodness and lush creation and fruitfulness was meant to go on forever. We even read that in the garden was placed the tree of life, which if you eat of that tree, you would live forever. That was God's intent. In God's goodness, he gives all of these things. He's kind. He's generous. Not only did he create good, but he is good. A little side note, um, when I'm telling the story of God 
to someone else, the Bible, I try to emphasize the bounty of God's goodness and blessing in creation. Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on all the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Out of the ground, the Lord made every made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. He tells Adam, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. Every, every, every in the whole world. I'm giving all of this to you. Every. Except one. Right? Um... So I try to emphasize that because people somehow see Christianity and see the ways of God as restrictive or limiting. Where, no, the picture that scripture lays out of God, which is the true picture, is one that he is generous and good. And he gives to us a magnificent amount of bounty of goodness and favor and blessing. So we learn these things about God. What do we learn about mankind? A couple of things. We learn that we are created in the image of God. Really important thing. Do you think God wanted us to get this when he writes in Genesis 1, 26 and on? Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. So God's wanting us to understand something very clearly that we were created in the image of God, both male and female, bearing God's image. So we are to look like, we were created to look like God, not just in a physical sense, but in character, in who we are. So we're, we aren't God, but we are like him. We are an image of him. We are like a reflection of him. We are his image, and in being so, we are unique among all other creation. That's another thing we can learn about mankind. We are the only thing he created that was created in his image. As I mentioned, mankind is particularly blessed. It doesn't say that about um, any of the other creations that he made. Um, also, mankind, if you read through the, the couple of chapters, man is given rule over creation. Genesis 1.26 says, Let them, mankind, have dominion or rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the livestock, over all the earth, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. No other being is given rule like this over others. So we call the lion the king of the jungle, right? But we, mankind, are meant to be, purposed to be, kings and queens over everything, even the lions. So... We are learning that, that mankind is, is the pinnacle of God's creation. We're unique. We're special. So this story is about God, all that we're learning about him, and his relationship to mankind. Those, those are the main characters, God and mankind. So that's genre. That's main events. Just um, and, and some kind of theological concepts there about God and man. So let's land just by saying, what is this section telling us? What does this contribute to the story? How does this fit into the other parts of the story? Well, we'll, we'll get there. But I'll just point out, when we look at Genesis 1, chapter 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now, these were ways that the ancients would talk about non-existence. 
without form and void, darkness over the face of the abyss. It's, um, it's like the way that they would talk about nothingness or, or being meaningless, having no order or no purpose. So then God creates and his purpose is revealed. Now we can read through scripture um, and, and you'll, you'll find out um, God's purposes for all of his creation that's revealed throughout the story. Uh, but we see here in Genesis 1 and 2, God's created intent for humanity, the other main character in the story, his purpose. I want you to remember that word purpose. So see if you can find God's purposes for mankind in this verse. Um, it shouldn't be hard. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over everything. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The overarching purpose for mankind is to image God or to display God. I think I can use that word image in, in a verb form, to image God. John Piper says this, the point of an image is to image. Images are erected to display the original. They point to the original, glorify the original. God made humans in his image so that the world would be filled with reflectors of God, images of God, seven billion statues of God so that nobody would miss the point of creation. Nobody, unless they were stone blind, could miss the point of humanity, namely God, knowing, loving, showing God. Okay? Overarching purpose is to image God. That's kind of what the famous Westminster Shorter Catechism says, that the chief end of man, or his primary purpose, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify is to, to show off, to show forth the majesty or the glory of God, or to image God. That's what we were designed to do. Well, how are we supposed to image God? There's two kind of ways I would break it down that he says, here's how I want you to go out and accomplish that. One, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So that's God's image or, or his glory bearers being spread throughout the world. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So little reflections, images of God are to spread out everywhere, to fill the earth. And then secondly, subdue and have dominion over the earth. Again, this is from Genesis 1.28. Subdue and have dominion over the earth. To subdue is to, is to bring under control. Okay? Kind of makes sense. It's a wild world God is sending them out into. And so they are to subdue it, to tame it, to, to bring it into order. Which, no surprise, is being like God. God, as we saw in the first couple of verses, is bringing chaos, forming it into order. That's like, that's how we're imaging God. 
and then to, to subdue and to have dominion. To have dominion is simply to rule like a king would rule. It's kind of this, this regal language. Now, I understand that to purpose us with subduing and ruling the earth could be taken kind of in a, in a negative sense. I don't know, for whatever reason, when I first hear it, it sounds negative. It sounds kind of harsh, like, okay, you're just going to rule the earth. Like, that's, that's subjugation, right? Um, probably because almost all the rulership that I can think of always goes wrong throughout history than I've ever experienced. But we have to remember a few things. One, he's given them rule or dominion over the, the animals, and you could probably argue over the, the plants and the rest of creation, but not over people. We aren't ruling other people. We also have to remember that this would be talking about rulership. This is written in a time when there would be no sin involved, if you can imagine that, a ruler or the ability to rule without sin. And again, this is human beings acting like or, or reflecting who God is in his rulership. They're imaging him, okay? So it's subjugation, yes, of the world and bring it under control and ruling over it, but it's in a very pure and holy and beautiful way. A small example of that is given shortly after that in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God put man in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it, it says, to cultivate the garden, to um, keep it is to preserve it, okay? So he's, he's subduing and he's ruling over creation. By the way, um, I think this should tell us something about how we, in our lives, are to treat the world that we live in. It's written into the very purpose here at the beginning of the story, the very purpose of our creation. So what's the purpose of God for his creation? The first part of the story, how the whole story is set up, simply put, God's purpose for man is to image, to fill, and rule. Image again, used as a verb, image, fill, spread throughout, and rule over in a righteous and holy way. Image, fill, rule. One other quick side note, when I'm telling the story of the Bible to somebody, which is the true story, and it's our story, I want to make sure that I'm giving emphasis here in Genesis 1 and 2 to our purpose, okay? Um, in fact, if you want to appeal to somebody, you want them to listen, then offer them purpose, right? That's desirable. Everybody kind of wants to know, well, what's my purpose in life? That's, you know, a common kind of sentiment. Um, and I would argue that if you don't understand the purpose or part one, the very beginning of the plot, then you won't understand the whole story properly. Okay. So let's lock this in as purpose. Now, um, this wouldn't be a real interesting story, right? If it stopped here. So what's going to happen next? That's what we're going to jump into in the next weeks. And uh, this isn't going to be a big surprise to you what happens. But how will humans do, I think the, the author of the story, God is setting us up to ask, how will they do in accomplishing the purpose for which they were created to image God? And there's a little bit of foreshadowing in there like any good story has. We read in Genesis 2, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a little bit later, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of any tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So will they image, fill and rule as designed? Well, wait till next time to find out, right? Um, so just to summarize, this is the first part of the six that we're going to cover. 
the first part of, this, of the plot, and we're entitling it Purpose. Okay, I'm going to give you um, four or five verses straight out of those chapters, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, just as a summary, purpose summary. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1, 1. Genesis 2, 7, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then Genesis 1:31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's the beginning of the story. The Bible is a story. It's a true story. It's our story.